Proverbs 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And before honor comes humility. Down in verse 18 of chapter 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. In the spring of 1981, I ran the 440. It's now the 400 meter race. That was my race in in high school track. And I ran it as a sophomore on the Mission Viejo High School track team, the Diablos. That was our mascot. (laughs) Amazing. But I vividly remember two meets from that year. I I remember running. I remember the experience. One of them I've, I've shared in here before. I know it was a race that I won. It was in the first meet of the year. And we were up against Capo Valley High School, our arch enemies. And they had a runner there, a 440 runner, a 400 meter runner. It's called the Ironman race because it's one time around the track, but you run it at a full out sprint. And by the end, it's painful. It's the race that Eric Little runs in in Chariots of Fire, if you've seen the movie. Well, in the first meet, I I won the race, and I shouldn't have. I came around the the final turn, and I was spent. I had no energy left, and I could hear the feet of, of my rival right behind me. We were neck and neck, and he was bearing down fast on me. And I just, I remember closing my eyes, and suddenly I was moving faster. And suddenly I had this, you know, this real second wind and I blew across the tape and I had a personal best uh, time that, that meet and, and I was so excited. Well, the next meet we came up against Capo Valley, but this time we were on their turf. We're at their track, which was up on a bluff above the Pacific Ocean and it was a windy day. And my opponent, the same guy who had almost run me down in the last meet, Knew the track, he worked out on that track, and one of the things that they faced there at Capistrano Valley was headwinds that would come off the ocean. And if you got on that backstretch and you had very little energy, and then you had, it was like running into a wall. And the race started, and I was out ahead, and I was doing well, but on the backstretch of the track, exhaustion came. But this time, this time, nothing changed. I just stayed exhausted. This time I'm running headlong into the wind and it, it felt literally like, you know those dream sequences in your mind where you, where you dream and the harder you try to run, the slower you move? That's how it felt. And around the back turn, my opponent, once again, is coming up on me. This time I can hear him coming faster like a locomotive. And then something happened unexpected. He spiked me. He cut in in front of me and literally the spikes from his shoes carved a little piece off of my ankle and knocked me into the center of the track onto the grass. You know the scene in Chariots of Fire where Eric Little gets knocked off? If you've seen the movie, he gets knocked and he gets back up and he runs and he wins the race? Well, I got up and I ran. I mean, literally, this happened. It happened to me. 81. Chariots of Fire came out in 80. I'm not making this up. This happened. And I get back on the track and I'm running and I'm running and I'm thinking, I'm Eric Little! I'm Eric Little! You know? And I never caught him. I couldn't catch up. I was spent. I was done. And I limped across the finish line. My, my ankle just bleeding. I did get second place, but it was a distant second. And in that moment, my coach, Fred Almond, by the way, Fred Almond, still, the, he's, the, he's the head coach of the Mishmael High School football team of recent fame who have won the, uh, the whole national thing several, several years now. Anyway, Fred Almond, young man at the time, short, bald, red-faced, 
comes sprinting across the track and he is hopping mad and you did not want to make Coach Almond mad. He comes over and he grabs my shoulder and he starts dragging me over before the judges of the event and I'm bleeding and I'm limping and he's dragging me over and he says, do you see? Did you see what happened there? That guy cut Rick off. That was an illegal move on the track. Look at his ankle and of course the blood's coming out and I won the race. They disqualified the other runner and they handed the victory to me. And I realized that I didn't even know that that was a rule, that it was a standard in running track. You can't cut somebody off. If you're going to pass somebody, you pass them on the outside and you have to be far enough that you don't break their stride when you cut in front of them. Well, I didn't know that. Or I would have been shouting foul from the side of the track and wouldn't have tried to finish the race. (laughs) You know? And I learned in that moment there are certain standards for running the race. There are certain rules set in place in the race that we run, set in place by the Lord. I love it. Just a moment ago, I'm sitting over here and I sat down by Cheryl and she's holding David in her lap uh, during communion and and David's excited and, and I said, are you ready to go to class? And he goes... I'm going to run. I'm going to run. <laughs> so he ran. He already knows he's in a race. We're in a race. We're running a race. But if we don't run, listen, if we don't run according to the rules, we will be disqualified. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, he says, I've I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. If you would win, you've got to run by the rules. Rule number one. Rule number one, it is by grace that you have been saved. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no man may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Make sure you have that memorized. Make sure you get that down. Anytime any pastor begins to talk about rules and requirements for running, or talks about laws or standards set forth in Scripture, understand rule number one, you are saved by grace. And we begin there. But in Jesus Christ, that race is already won. The victory crown awaits you. However, however, the honor you receive once you finish that race does depend on how the race is won. It's a different, different types of honor. We've talked about in here, there are different rewards the Bible indicates as to how you run the race. And sometimes the rules of the race are counterintuitive. The rules are not rules that we would expect or that we would assume, especially in the way we live life. They aren't instinctual. Many of the rules set forth in Scripture are absolutely unnatural. They have to be learned by us. And to get to the place of honor, perhaps the most surprising rule the Father lays out before us is humility. Humility. That if you would be first... You've got to be last. That makes no sense in our world. That doesn't come naturally to us. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not the proud, 
Not the haughty, not those who stand strong and firm and and accomplished and successful, who can say, look at what I've done with my life. Not those who build great edifices. Kiss Crystal Cathedral on North Whidbey Island. I want us to be known for the shabby barn. That's a good title to have. But I want to talk about humility this morning. Humility is a standard in Christianity. If you've walked with Jesus any, any amount of time whatsoever, you've probably heard Him talk about this. you probably heard some teaching on this. But I want you to think about this morning, in context, this verse, how humility relates to honor. Because I'm, I'm thinking this is one of the most vital and yet ignored, or, or at least difficult, rules of the race. I'm becoming more convinced that even among those who are characteristically quiet those who are meek in nature, those who are unassuming, that humility is still not a natural thing. I'm not sure that humility is natural with any human being. That even in in our quietness there might be pride. Even in our meekness there might be a source of feeling good about who, who we are. Now there's a certain prerequisite for beginning the race, for running the course, for learning this this idea of humility and what God intends of it. And the prerequisite is the fear of the Lord. We've seen it in Proverbs many times already. Seen it present there in the Mishle, the prerequisite of the fear of the Lord. Verse 7 of chapter 1 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Chapter 8 verse 13 says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Chapter 10, verse 17, the fear of the Lord prolongs life or lengthens days. We talked about the full day when you fear the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 26, in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. Verse 27 of chapter 14, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And chapter 16, verse 6, tells us by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. But here's the thing. If you fear the Lord, you won't fear anything else. If you don't fear the Lord, you'll fear everything else. And so the verse begins, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And that's absolutely key. Fear the Lord and you have nothing to fear. Don't fear the Lord and you have everything to fear. And so we begin, before even putting a foot on the track, we begin with this issue, the fear of the Lord. Literally, the fear of the Lord is the instructor of wisdom. The instructor of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is our Fred Almond. Our Coach Almond is the fear of the Lord. Now, Coach Almond put the fear of Coach Almond in me as a track runner in high school. But in our case, our coach is the fear of the Lord. It's our trainer. Because the natural course of man is to promote self-esteem and self-love and self-interest, all of which ultimately produces self-centered, self-consumed selfishness. If we focus on the self, we will end up completely consumed by the self. And that is problematic. And yet that's what we're taught in our world. That's what we're taught in our schools. But it's not about the self. The greatest barrier to knowing the Lord or growing in the Lord is the self. It's the greatest reason why people can't step into knowledge of the Lord. It's not the facts. 
It's faith. It's getting beyond self. The Lord says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 28, They will call on Me, but I will not answer. They will seek Me diligently, but they will not find Me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. It's our teacher, our coach, because humility is a learned thing. And as we fear the Lord... <laughs> Awe replaces arrogance because we see the Almighty more for who He is. Humility is learned because we're not born with it. We're trained in it. And as we walk humbly, we walk in the awareness of His presence. The more aware you are of God's presence in your life day to day, the more humble you are because He's God. And that simple awareness of His awesome majesty is critical for running the race. Proverbs 23, verse 17 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Without this holy awe, we labor under a false delusion. What's that? That we have achieved what we set out to achieve. That our successes have something to do with us. That our accomplishments are based on all our years of putting it together. And it's not true. Any success, any achievement in the world is only based on God-given gifts. On God-given opportunities. For the believer as well as for the unbeliever. The blessing of life and gifts and abilities and talents, it all comes from the Lord. And it truly is not of ourselves. The fear of the Lord is the single most important prerequisite for the race because it's in the fear of the Lord that we begin the process of humility. Now, if you're taking notes, we've already jotted down two, or we're jotting down two now, the the prerequisite of the fear of the Lord. And secondly, the process now of humility. Before honor comes humility. Or literally, before honor, humility. Before honor, humility. Let that sink in. The verse does not say the prideful must be humiliated. It simply reads... Before honor, humility. And gang, this is as true as the law of gravity. Before honor, humility. It's not exclusive to people who are arrogant and need to be humbled. You know, those of us who, when we sit around and look around and say, okay, that guy needs some uh, humility, and that guy needs some humility. She really needs some humility. This is not for those people. Or for the person saying everybody else needs humility. This verse is for everyone, even the most meek, even the most upright, even the most apparently, seemingly humble among us. This is the standard game before honor, humility. I think of righteous Job. Remember we studied through that book. What an amazing story of a man, Job chapter 1 verse 1 tells us, who lived in the land of Uds, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. He met all the requirements. He was running well. But God in His wisdom chose this upright, blameless, God-fearing man for utter humiliation and loss. Why Job? Why choose a man like that? Because no matter who you are before honor, humility. And it's as real as oxygen that we breathe. 
William Arnott, the writer of studies in Proverbs, said, you must go to honor through humility. So listen, if anyone here would be honored, there's only one way to get there. It's through humility. Every height has its corresponding depth, he writes. As far as the Andes pierce upward into the sky, so far do the valleys of the Pacific at their base go down into the heart of the earth. If the branches of a tree rise high into the air, its roots must penetrate to a corresponding depth in the ground. This law pervades the material works of God as well as the moral administration of God. This is how it works. Scan the pages of biblical history. Look at the people talked about in the Bible. Noah was mocked during the entire building of the ark. And how about Moses? Born a Hebrew child, raised a prince of Egypt, and then 40 years as a shepherd, nameless, unknown, in Midian. Or think of the big example in the Bible, Israel itself. A people who have gone through humility before honor can come. You remember when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to be dedicated at the temple. They took Him in there and they ran into a couple of interesting people. One was a man named Simeon and Simeon began to prophesy over the baby Jesus and put his hand on Jesus and he said, Luke 2.34, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed because before the rising is the falling. The fall comes before the rise. And the examples in the Bible go on and on. Joshua, Gideon, Samson, Samuel, David, Jeremiah, Daniel, all of these who were humbled. I was, I'll tell you last week when we talked about a woman's place. I was stunned. There was one moment for me that, that it was something that was not in my notes. It was something that just I blurted out in first service and then second service, and that's dangerous when you're talking about a woman's place to blurt anything out. <laughs> but I, all week I can't get this out of my head. Sarah, Rachel, Leah, Ruth, Mary. They impacted the world from their living room. And that was the thing that I said last week, and I went away. I mean, that happens from time to time. Something will come out of my mouth and I'll go, What? What? And I haven't been able to shake that thought. These women changed the world from home, from the living room. I'm not going back to that teaching, ladies. You can hear it if you want to. It's online. But humility. Sarah. What a humble woman to go through what she went through. And Rachel and Leah and Mary. All of these walked the path of utter humiliation before before honor came. How about the Apostle Paul? Paul was at the top of his game before Jesus got a hold of him and shook all the pride out of him. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.4, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is by the law, Paul writes, found blameless. Had a spotless record, he says. But whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The Lord said to Ananias, who would go and, and baptize Saul, said, I want you to go. Find this guy and baptize him. 
For I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Because before honor, humility. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And therefore I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, Paul says, then I am strong. I grew up hearing that. And yet, it's ridiculous by human standards. It is a topsy-turvy process from a human perspective. And yet, from the wisdom of God's instruction, it is the only way to run the race. Before honor comes humility. Why, Lord? Because the Father would tell us, I know something about how your hearts tick. God knows something of the human heart. Over in verse 18 of chapter 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Now Cheryl and I were talking about this yesterday. She said, what exactly is, is haughty? And I said, well, you're a haughty, but you're not haughty. <laughs> <laughs> to try and explain and what that means. <laughs> Haughtiness, to be proud and arrogant. Honor is gained, my friends, Honor is gained without humility will swell my natural pride. Honor gained without paying my dues, in essence, is going to cause me to stumble every single time. It's interesting, in the tenth year of the American Idol season, some of the long-time musicians are, are coming out and saying some things about it. You know, Guys like Keith Richards and Tom Petty and some of these others who are saying... They think this American Idol thing is a bad idea. You know? Duh. Take a kid, 16, 17, 18 years old, stick him in front of a camera for 14 weeks, give him a prize, give him a recording contract, send him out on the road. Tom Penny was quoted just a week ago and saying, you know, we worked hard, we paid our dues to get to where we've gotten. We, we took the hard road. And we worked all that out. And to suddenly be thrust into the limelight, how many child stars, actresses, and, 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 and child performers, musicians, end up doing well? I mean, like 99.9% end up in utter ruin. Because before honor, humility. And honor gained without humility is dangerous for the pride of man. But you know what? It is not God's desire to cause anybody to fall. That's why he says pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. I don't want you to stumble, the Lord would say. I don't want you to fall. God's desire is to lift you up. Now understand that, because some of you right now may be in a place where you're feeling pressured, or you're feeling humbled, or humiliated, or life is just not going the way you had planned for it to go. People get to that place and they start to shake their fist against the Lord. I did this for you and this is the outcome? It's not right. I I don't understand. Please understand that the Lord's desire is to lift you up. Isaiah 30 verse 18, The Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all of those who long for Him. Psalm 8, David's talking about this remarkable thing that God did in creation. What is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him. 
Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and with majesty. And that's how it all began. Look at it this way. Man was the crown of creation. Man was the apex of God's creative work in those seven days. He finished with man. He said, man, that's really good. And God was excited about creation itself. He sets Adam and Eve there in the garden. But remember, this creature, the only creature created in the Creator's image, the only one in the crowning of His glory and majesty and authority, that creature fell and fell hard. Crowned with the honor of creation, Adam and Eve fell hard. Now, last week I shared that women tend to be more spiritually sensitive than men, and I believe that's true. However, however, the reality is the most vulnerable place in a man or a woman is not your water cup on the ground. The most vulnerable place... <laughs> sorry. The most vulnerable place for a man or a woman is the spirit. The most vulnerable place for pride to cut in, to spike you, is spiritual pride. I've seen it time and time again in church ministry. I have, well, I've dealt with it time and time again in my own life. Spiritual arrogance and holy haughtiness, pious pride. I Part of the reason I think I struggle with even teaching this this morning is I just don't like to think about arrogance because then i got to look at myself. I battle it all the time, gang. I've said before, I wish that we could just stick a microphone out back. I could stand out there, preach to nobody. You could listen in here, and then I could go home and not have to you know, interact at all. Not because I don't like interacting. I just don't like interacting after sermons. <laughs> no one's going to talk to me now. No, don't talk to Rick. No, because, because there are times when, when I'm walking home and I'm like, <laughs> way to go, Rick. Hey, I'm just being honest here. You know, Jake's shaking his head at me. Dude, it's the truth. And I wish it wasn't that way. And there are times when I'm walking home feeling that way, invariably God humbles me. Invariably those are the times where I'll get, you know, an email saying you were way off or my mother-in-law will say, well, I just didn't really think that was very good today, you know, or something. <laughs> there are things I could tell you that I, I'm not going to. There are times when I've been teaching and I really didn't think it met anybody where they were at. And those are always the times when people are most affected and changed. So I've learned I'm a very poor judge of how well I'm doing trying to teach the Word of God. But it's hard to talk about this stuff. It is hard to deal with and talk about humility. I think God placed me here seven and a half years ago because He knew I needed a dose of it. I had a meeting with someone right as the bridge began. Someone called me up and said, hey, I want to talk to you about a few things. Great. Got together, sat down. The person looked across the table and said, you are so arrogant. Because we were starting this church. You're arrogant to think you could do anything. And I'm thinking in my head, wait a minute, there's like 15 people in a living room, that's arrogance? (laughs) And God has taken me down a path that has been humiliating many times in my life. And He's going to do it again, I guarantee it. 
And, and you know, as long as I'm just being completely blunt and honest to you, this building project scares me to death. Because people say, and I've heard over and over, when we get in that building, this church is going to double instantly. And I go, how do we deal with that? I'm going to need a few of you to sit on me. If God provides the kind of growth we're praying for and longing for, and I do, and that's the, that's the tension here. I long for this church to explode with people who are finding Jesus Christ and getting saved. I would love that. I would love right now if we had 15 services on Sunday because so many people were coming to Jesus. Then we had to refill the pond because so many people were getting baptized all the time. I'd love it. But that's completely different than standing on the threshold of a large church and being proud of what you have accomplished. And so I believe the Lord is saying to me right now and to all of us, don't get out ahead of me. This has to be about me and not about you, Rick. This has to be about my work and not about you, Bridge Fellowship. That we keep the focus where it belongs and that we remain in that place of humility before the Lord. He takes us through the process because He knows us. He knows us backward and forward. He knows how easily we become arrogant. How quickly we... Even just that little smile of pride that we've really done something here. He knows. And He walks us down that path. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Later on, an argument starts up between the apostles, asking each other, or arguing over, who's the greatest among us? And Jesus takes a little child and places him in front of them and says, whoever receives this child in My name receives Me. Whoever receives Me receives Him who sent Me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who's great." Completely upside down. What we talk about and see as greatness in this world is smallness to the Lord. And the most humble place in the church, the most humble place of ministry, that to Jesus is great. That is honorable. And so He says in John 12.26, If anyone serves Me, he must follow Me. And where I am, there My servant will be also. If anyone serves Me, the Father will honor Him. Before honor Humility. Now, I I would say to Jesus and have said to Him, I love being your servant, but this is not the way I would have chosen to do it. I love serving You, Lord. I want to be in ministry. I want to have my life affect others. But this road? This way? Just a few verses down in chapter 16, verse 9, it says, The mind of man plans his way But the Lord directs His steps. And if you would seek the honor of the Lord, it will be through the path of humility. This process of humility. And it's the path rarely chosen. It's not the one that we look for. You know, Peter didn't look for this path. When Jesus restored Peter to ministry, and I love the picture. He's standing there. They're on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They're having breakfast. 
And as they're eating breakfast, Jesus after the resurrection, John chapter 21, He he looks at Peter and, and He asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And all three times Peter says, yes, I love you. You know I love you. Of course I love you. But three times, in the same way that Peter denied Jesus, three times he's restating Peter into ministry. He's restoring this, this man. But then he says this to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish. And he was probably talking about the way Peter was going to die. You're going to stretch out your hands. Tradition tells us Peter was crucified like Jesus, only upside down. Because he didn't want to be crucified. didn't feel himself... Uh, worthy to be crucified in the way Jesus was. But so interesting, you may not go the way you want to go. Peter was not going to go the way he had planned for his life to go. You know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're on the road that you thought you were going to be on. It doesn't matter. And please, gentlemen especially, hear this. When you hit midlife, as I am hitting now, the question arises from time to time, this is it? This is what I'm doing? This is what my life is, is going to be about? I told Cheryl, there are times recently where I'm going, boy, I hope people don't realize I have no idea what I'm doing here. <laughs> this is it. This is the path. And when you get to that stage in life, you start looking back going, boy, what would have happened if I had gone this way or that way? And I'm not, I'm not bemoaning my life, but it's kind of a reality. It starts to creep in. Gentlemen, listen. It does not matter the path you have been on. What matters, what defines the process is how you view that path. It's how you look at things. What do you mean? I mean there is good news on the course of humiliation. There is good news on the track when you are racing through humility. And here's the good news. The deeper the humiliation, the greater the exaltation. The more humiliated you may be, for the cause of Christ Jesus specifically, the greater the exaltation, the greater the honor, the more I'm humbled, the greater God can entrust honor to me. And maybe right now you're in a place, ladies, gentlemen, of humiliation. You've lost everything you set out to gain. You've struggled. Your life has not ended up where you wanted it to end up at this point. You're on a different course than the one you set out on 10, 20, 30 years ago. You have a choice. As hard as it may be, you have a choice right now in the path of humility. You can either view it With condemnation, what have I done with my life? Woe is me. Or, you can walk this path with anticipation. Anticipation. Because there is a prospect, a prospect of humility. That's number three, the prospect of humility. And in the Lord, this is key, in the Lord, humiliation is never about embarrassment or shame or condemnation. Oh yeah, God will use humility, but not for those purposes. Our sin may shame us. Our sin does. The devil will try to embarrass you. The devil will try to condemn. The devil will talk you down. Not the Lord. He's always working for that greater good in your life. He sees the finish line. 
He knows the break, the, the tape has already been broken by Jesus, and He's calling you to run, run. Even if it's through the course of humility, run because He sees the end, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. That's how He works. Even through humiliation, yes. Even through humiliation. Listen, David knows all about this. Turn back to 2 Samuel 16, just for a moment. 2 Samuel 16. I choose this example because David is older in life. David has done all his conquering. David is king of Israel, has come to a glorious place, and suddenly he finds himself in humiliation all over again. And it's not for any choice of his own. 2 Samuel chapter 16, David is fleeing the city of Jerusalem, fleeing his throne because Absalom, his son, is usurping it, taking it over. We talked about the story many times. In fact, it was so impactful in the life of David, a large number of the Psalms are devoted to how he was thinking and feeling during this season of his life. He's fleeing the city because his son, his own son, is trying to take over or has taken over the throne. Verse 5 of 2 Samuel 16. When King David came to Baharim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah. And he came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. And thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of bloodshed! You worthless fellow! The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. Behold, you are taken in your own evil, and you are a man of bloodshed. And David is, is hearing this, and this Shimei guy, he's, he's bitter. Notice he's of the house of Saul. So he's still upset that David took over the rule and the reign of Israel after Saul was killed. So he's really getting on David's case. He's running along the ridge as David and his entourage are leaving Jerusalem. And as Shimei runs along the ridge, he's grabbing rocks and dirt and everything he can and throwing it at him and shouting curses at David and saying, you're a man of bloodshed and violence and you're getting what you deserve. And then, verse 9, Abishai, and I love Abishai. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse the Lord my king? Let, let me go over now and cut off his head. Please, please, let me cut off his head. Can I, please? Huh, huh? Can I? <laughs> I love Abishai. He does this another time. He's always asking if he can kill someone for David. This guy bugging you? I'll take him out. Can I kill him? Can I drive a spear right through his head? Please, can I? Huh, huh, huh? Hilarious. This is Abishai, but David... Older David, seasoned David, wise David, responds differently than perhaps I would in the same situation. He's run this race before. And there are three questions that arise out of what David says. The first thing he says, verse 10. What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? In other words, Abishai, put a lid on it. If he curses... And if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Listen, if you are in the place of humiliation, first question to ask, the first question, Lord, is it you? Lord, is it you? 
Are you the one who has me here? Am I here by your choice, by your doing? Is this humiliating circumstance, Lord? Is this of you? First and best question to ask. If you're in a low point in your life, Lord, if this is you, who am I to reject it? That's what David's saying. Don't tell the guy to stop cursing. Perhaps the Lord told him to curse. And if the Lord told him to curse, I need to hear it. David knows he was a man of bloodshed. Okay? David knows there were certain things going on in his own household. In fact, the second question, first question, Lord, is it you? Second question, Lord, is it me? Am I on this path of humiliation because of my own choices? Have I landed myself here? Look at verse 11. David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him. David says, look guys, Absalom came from my own body. This trouble that we're having here is a problem in my own household. You know, Absalom was a young man when David had the affair with Bathsheba and messed up the kingdom. Absalom watched his father shame himself. Absalom watched the whole thing. David had every right as a dad, and dads, you can probably join me in saying, boy, when I look back on raising my kids, there are things I would have done different. I wish I could have done different. As a sinful man, I've had all kinds of issues in my life. David's saying, look at my family. How can we blame this Shimei for cursing me? Look at my family. My own son is usurping the throne here. He's implying a dysfunction that he himself caused and perhaps he deserves right now to be fleeing Jerusalem. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. I all the time end up doing things I wish I didn't do. I don't want to do, but I find myself doing them. Paul says that. And you know one of the great truths of Scripture, and we're right back to rule number one for the race, a great truth is even even when humiliation in my life is self-imposed, even when I deserve condemnation, guess what I get? Grace. I deserve all the humiliation that I've ever faced or ever will face. I deserve it. I've earned it. But Jesus says, I want to give you grace. I want to give you salvation, redemption, restoration. These things are of me. Paul says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 1 and 2. So even if right now you're in a place where humiliation is self-imposed, where you can look at the situation and say, Lord, is it me? And And the answer is very clearly, yes, I got myself here. Guess what? Even in that place, you can hand the humiliation to the Lord and He will take it and He will use it for a greater good. For your greater good. He will turn it ultimately to honor if you will hand it over to the Father. There's one more prospect of humiliation that David recognizes here. Verse 12, he says, Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of, or literally because of, 
His cursing this day. Lord, is it you? Lord, is it me? Or number three, Lord, can you take this? Lord, will you take this? This humiliation? This humbling circumstance? Will you take this, Lord? And He answers always in Jesus, Yes. Yes. I will take your humiliation. In fact, you know what? In that moment, David was only hours away from being restored to the throne in Jerusalem. As he's speaking these words, saying, perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me. God did. David would end up back on the throne, restored. But in this, I mean, the wisdom of David is amazing. It's remarkable. He recognizes his humbling, humiliating circumstance. God was doing something. He was involved somehow in causing it. But there is something good. There is honor on the horizon. Something good is coming. If you are being humbled today, let me give you a guarantee. You will be honored. If you're walking through humiliation in the Lord, if you hand it to the Lord, it will result in honor. Honor is coming. But before it can, He's got to prepare you. He's got to prepare me. Which again is one of the things that scares me about the prospect of this being a a vibrant, growing fellowship. What do you mean? I I mean, what's God going to do to humiliate me before the honor comes? What are we going to have to walk here as a church for Him to honor what's being done here? He prepares our spirits. Let me read to you quickly Psalm 131. For David also, older in his life, was able to write... Just listen as I read. Psalm 131, verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. I have composed and quieted my soul... Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. When we are in these seasons of humiliation, when we're there, if you're there, you have a choice. You can choose self-pity or defeatism or self-condemnation. Woe is me. You can play the role of the martyr. Or instead, you can look at the season of humiliation as an opportunity for God to train you up to honor. To bring you to a better place. You can choose, as David does, you can choose the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel, who is Jesus Christ. Because nobody embraced humiliation like Jesus. And that's really the end of all this. The person of humility is Jesus. Before honor comes humility. Before the crown, the cross. Before He was exalted to the heavens, Jesus was humiliated on the earth. Nobody has been humiliated like Jesus was humiliated. None of us have ever walked a path that was as brutal and embarrassing and shameful and shocking as Jesus did. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If you are in a humbling place right now, if you are humiliated, hand it to the Lord. Ask Him, Lord, is it you? Lord, is it me? Lord, will you take this and use this for your good? And honor is on the way. Honor is coming. Father, we honor You first and foremost, and we fear You as our God and our Creator and our great Lord. And this morning, Lord, again, I pray that You apply these three simple words before honor, humility. Would You teach us what it means to walk that out? Lord, whatever You have to do in our lives to keep us in the place where we can serve You and not become prideful, where we can work for You and not become arrogant. Where we can, Lord, be of use to You and Your kingdom and not become haughty in ourselves. Lord, we need You to take us the path, down the path that You have chosen for us, even if it's not one we would choose. And Lord, we humble ourselves before You under the mighty hand of God. In Jesus' name, Amen.